I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. He's been called the quintessential American sports writer. He's been writing about the NBA for more than 50 years. That's 50-5-0. He's an icon in Boston and a longtime national voice of wisdom on ESPN shows Around the Horn and Pardon the Interruption. He is Bob Ryan, and he's kind and generous enough to share stories with us on Pressbox Access. Well, Bob, thanks a lot for joining us on the show. You're welcome. Nice to be here, as they say. As they say. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the only thing I was thinking, I wish we were at the fours in Boston. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm sad already because it's uh, closed, you know, and, and yeah. uh, I have very, very fond memories of it, of course. And, uh, and not just, it's, it's so symptomatic of what's going on. Uh, yeah, but a country hardly the only failed business or the only casualty of all this. But this one hurts home for me. Yes. Yeah, the fours uh, was a great watering hole across from the old garden, and a lot of world problems were solved by sports <laughs> writers in the fours. <laughs> so, and by the way, uh, as we get started here, we got a lot to cover. But I hear you're a good tap dancer. Is that right? Well, I don't know how good I am now, but I can tell you right now that I was the best damn tap dancer in the North Trenton Little League and the Trenton PAL Little League the year after that. Well, you're a better rider to me, and I'm sure you're a better dancer because, you know, I was just known for the white man overbite, you know, the lawnmower, the sprinkler, not a tap dancer. But. Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I had the opportunity to be trained, and, and I actually, you know, performed with, with groups and I, in it and, and enjoyed it. And, I, and anyway, uh, so that was a part of my youth. Well, you were tapping on the keyboard for 50 years now and seen so many amazing things in sports. Uh, obviously you saw the whole evolution of the NBA, the growth, um, and then the Olympics, baseball, golf, you name it, you've covered it. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. I think it would be great to start, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of people, but one thing I wanted to ask you about was the old, the old Boston garden itself. It, it was modeled after the, uh, uh, not the original, but the second Madison Square Garden, the one that older people know, the one at 48th and 8th in New York that, that lasted until 1968. That's the one I grew up on. Uh, you, you needed poles in those days. And, that, and when you had poles and, uh, and both in indoor arenas and outdoor stadia, uh, meant you could have better uh, proximity to the, to the action. You know, right. having them set back. That's just why there is no baseball park today that has a view comparable to Tiger Stadium. You were right there on top of the action. And of course, when I first started going there, this where they were literally smoke filled. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. There were no smoking restrictions. It was a, a far more smoking society. That was part of this, you know. Uh, and of course, the uh, what what um, each had a, featured an organ. That was the uh, mm -hmm. uh, that was the musical background. And in Boston, the most famous name guy was John Kiley, who famously played uh, uh, at Fenway Park and Boston Garden. So there was an intimacy. There was a charm. There was a uh, it, it wasn't a, a feel for comfort. You know, at all, you know, uh, wooden seats. I had my I got two my old last seats from the building, or I have. Uh, literally have the right ones too. We we were able to pick out the seats before they demolished the building. Had a, 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 a charm that uh, are not possible to replicate. Yeah, when I was at the Cincinnati Post in the early '90s covering college basketball, Xavier played at the Cincinnati Gardens, and it was the same thing. Just an old, old building, and they would turn the lights off 
except for the lights above the court. And it looked like a stage. <laughs> and your feet would stick to the floor because of the spilled beer. Oh, yeah. And there was cigar smoke. And it just had a much different feel to yeah, it. Yeah, no, it was totally different. And I was in that building once my first year covering the league. Uh, the uh, Royals, well, actually, the second year was 70 71. Uh, they were still in Cincinnati. They had yet to relocate to Kansas City and, and, and Omaha, as you know. And mm-hmm. uh, I was in there once. But, so I'm glad to say I was able to do that. I, mean, I missed a couple of the old baseball parts that, that kill me. I never got to Forbes Field. I never got to Griffith Stadium. Mm-hmm. I never got to Crossley Field. I, uh, those are three that I wish I had gotten to. One more thing about the garden. The parquet floor mm-hmm. became like its own. It had its own fame. Yeah. Uh, was the floor really as, I mean, were there dead spots? I mean, like there's a certain amount of exaggeration that takes place. I do believe that it's probably true. There were certain deader spots than others, but they, it wasn't bad enough that you would put the ball down and it wouldn't come back up. You know, some of the stories people tell are about that. And then the mythology is that the Celtics knew where the dead spots were and could, uh, you know, steer ball handlers to it. Nonsense, you know, come on. <laughs> but there were, it, it was something, but it, it was, it was a, a made out of extra spare, spare parts, spare wood. That was the thing. It was made out of, uh, originally out of wood. I mean, it was out of wood, but spare wood and put together in that fashion and in that parquet fashion. And, and so and when they uh, moved to the new garden, they wanted to replicate the look. It was a tougher place to do business as time went on the garden. You know, I can understand that. And then, and I, I, I understood that the time had come that we needed a the city needed a better facility, but boy, uh, I, you know, I'm, I mourned it. I missed it. And uh, I'm very happy to say that um, the night of the last game that was played there, which was uh, Orlando beating the Celtics in 1995 playoffs, the last game, uh, I I had brought my ticket stub from my first visit there, which was on October 17th, 1964, on a Saturday night. And I I always carried that ticket stub, or I had it. And I brought it in, and I asked the uh, Globe photographer on duty that night, would he mind taking me my picture as I sit in that seat while they are taking up the floor for the final time ever. Oh, that's awesome. And it, when I first started going to the garden uh, as a student at Boston college, uh, we sat in the second balcony uh, for $2. And wow. so your night would be 25 cents on the MD on the T to go from BC on the green line to downtown to North station, and then walk in and $2 second balcony seats. And of course we always, uh, not always, you usually wanted to go for the double header as soon as you have those double headers. So one night, in fact, the first game was 76ers versus the expansion Supersonics, and Wilt set a record that still stands. And this is not <laughs> hyperbole. This is not. This is the gospel truth. Still record, and I predict it will never be broken. And this is most free throws missed in one game. How many? 22. <laughs> he was 8 for 30 that night from the line, but he had 22 field goals. So he had 52 points while missing 22 free throws. <laughs> I don't think that anyone's going to challenge that. That's a great stat. There's so many with Chamberlain. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, you spent thousands of nights in the garden, but really your sports writing career began when you were 11 years old. <laughs> you wrote for the Sportster. I called it, I wrote a, I wrote a column. Uh, I, I typed out a column, uh, you know, emulating, you know, what I had been reading in the paper, that the way to do it. And the column basically was an evaluation or observation on what was going on in the grammar school basketball league that I was playing in and for St. Joseph's School, the Trenton Parochial Basketball League, and also some observations on the big, larger world, um, including the Boston Celtics. And, and I, I believe, I'm sure Bob Cousy would be proud to know that I quote, and I said, quote, Cousy quarterbacks this club masterfully. <laughs> I'm sure he would have appreciated that compliment from the kid in Trenton, New Jersey. 
Well, how did you critique your own play if you were playing in the league? Well, I was, uh, my game never changed uh, from the time I started playing, which was I was a, a scorer who disdained defense and rebounded on very rare occasions. And um, uh, that was my game. I had it for years, you know, but somewhere along the way, in the midst of moving, I finally lost it. I would love you, obviously, I would have loved to have kept that, had that keepsake, but I'm all, I'm always curious about where writers start. Sports has always been such a part of your life. I know. So you, you go to Boston College, you intern at the uh, Boston Globe in 1968 with some guy named Peter Gammons. Yeah, well, I'm, you know I, I, mean? I lost yeah. track of him. <laughs> Only the, one of the great, if not the greatest baseball writer ever. Uh, so, you know, you go, you show up in 1968 with Gammons at the Globe. And next thing you know, a year later, you get hired full-time, and they put you on the Boston Celtics beat in October of 69. The Celtics had just won their 11th championship in 13 years. Bill Russell had just retired. You're 23 years old. You're on the Celtics beat. What, what the hell was that like? Overwhelming. Um, you know, I knew I could write a game story. I figured that, and I could. But that, there's no manual that teaches anyone how to cover a team. There's no manual. It's, that is the ultimate OJT. And I'm 23, and I had I was thrown into this on a Wednesday, and, and, and it was, oh, by the way, you're covering the game opening night Friday. And they, I had not gone to any exhibitions. They had a new coach, Tom Heinsohn. I hadn't met him. hadn't met anybody. The first time I met anybody was when I, you know, encountered people the night of the opening game against Cincinnati Royals in 1969. Um, uh, it was overwhelming. You have to learn how to how to act, uh, what, uh, how to conduct yourself around these people, uh, how to how to ingratiate yourself. What you are is a salesperson. You're a salesman, and you're selling yourself to the players, the coaches, the administrators. So, and you got to you got to present and sell yourself. They have to, to gain credibility. So, I had to I had to get credibility from not just what I wrote but what, how I was day to day with these people. And, and, and um, so the first year was all expository, you know, it was all learning about, about all this and getting, you know, and, and finding out all these other writers, the, the, the veterans on the other beat that knew these guys, you know, you know they, they had all had a huge head start on me. Incident, I mentioned this in the book, I believe, that, uh, that uh, kind of crystallizes, you know, how I, where I was starting from and where I, as opposed to where I was and where I wanted to get to. About a month in, uh, my idol, literally the guy I would like to have been. And I thought when I was 20, this is who I want to be when I'm 30 and 40. Frank DeFord of Sports Illustrated comes in to do a story on the, on the Russell, post-Russell, post-Sam Jones Celtics and how they're faring and what they're like and this and that. One day while he's there, uh, I look into the training room and, and Larry Siegfried is sitting in the, in the hot tub and they're perched over, you know, with his notebook, because it was before the tape recorder days uh, of 96, is Frank DeFord interviewing or chatting and interviewing Larry Siegfried. And he knew all these guys because he had covered the playoffs for a couple of years, including that wonderful run they had in 69 when Russell, you know, wins out the farewell. They win the balloon game in the forum and all that, you know. So, and I'm sitting there going, someday I want to be the guy, you know, sit interviewing the guy in the hot tub. I remember being that age, being on around the NFL beat and just feeling totally overwhelmed too. You know, like, who are these people? They don't know me. You have to earn credibility. And it was frightening many days. After the game, I'm making the rounds in the locker room, you know, to, to get in the interviews. And um, I, I, I approach a, uh, a, a one of the players on the uh, Royals. And as I'm doing so, and I'm and he's talking, it's like, as this thing came over me, 
oh my God, I'm talking to Oscar Robertson. The big O. And that was, I felt, I, I was like, well, I'm talking to Oscar Robertson. This is like, you know, it's surreal. So tell me about the NBA then, because not only is it new to you to cover a team, you're going into an NBA league that is way different than what it is today. Uh, Tell me about that first year. What was the NBA like? I think they had like eight staffers, including the commissioner. That was it? Eight staff people? Yes. The the first NBA guide, I got my my NBA guides behind me on on the shelf, and the one for 1969-70, the the entire uh, uh, front office uh, listings are eight people. Uh, and, and, I, and by the way, three of whom are secretaries. <laughs> you have a commissioner, a, 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 an assistant, the head of officials, and publicity. That's four. I forget the fifth, and then three secretaries. And and that was the entire league front office. The yeah, 14, office. 14 teams. And uh, fourteen teams. Uh, they would expand at the end of that year for the you know for, with right. the uh, Buffalo, Portland, Cleveland deal. But fourteen double headers in the East particularly, but not just the East, plenty of neutral sites all over the place, uh, you know, uh, uh, and all teams playing new games. The Celtics themselves were still playing in Providence. Um, later they switched that to Hartford, right, through the 80s, uh, the late 80s, okay? And they were only drawing like 7,000. Yeah, the Celtics were having about 7,000. And then maybe if Wilt came in, they might bang it out, or the Lakers, and that's it. And then the, the, now, and the Knicks, because the Knicks would – would do well because of the Boston, uh, the, the New York City oriented college students would, would come to the garden for the Knicks. And those were like college games because there was actually a, about a two third, one third cheering uh, ratio. So there'd be a lot of cheers when the Knicks scored a basket. About a third of the building was cheering for the Knicks because they were all these New York college kids. That's amazing. When you think about it, here's, this stood out to me. You're covering the, the defending NBA champions winners of 11 of the last 13 NBA championships, you're on the beat and you don't cover the road games. No. You actually had to stay in the office and listen to the radio and then Tommy Heinsohn, the coach, would call you? So what I would do, and this went on for until the 72-73 season. For two years I did this um, for the most part. I would um, – I, I, it was on TV. They did get a TV contract with Channel 27 in Worcester in January of 1970. So occasionally there would be a game on. But roughly, it was uh, otherwise radio, and the great legendary Johnny Most was the announcer, and 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 he took homerism to heights un, unprecedented or unsurpassed, you know, and and you couldn't rely on the on the honesty uh, and a sense of descriptions, <laughs> you know. That Johnny you know, Most calling the game. So you had to you had to kind of run it through a filter, you know. So I'm listening to the game, and I'm keeping a running of the game, and after the game, I write the game story, you know, off the radio, and then for the evening story. Heinsohn would call me and he never missed a call like a high school coach going back to the local, the small town paper. He would call me and I would interview him and I would write my PM story off of that interview with him that, and he would call me. The uh, coach of the defending NBA champions is calling you at the Boston globe office to tell you what happened in the game. So you could write your story. Tell me his version of the game. Yeah. What I think it shows though, is it obviously shows the growth and explosion Oh. Basketball is a sport. The NBA is a game. Yeah, yeah. I think where it came from, you were there at the at the grassroots of popularity I for mean, the NBA. I mean, sure the the uh, the game, the league was on the you know not the not the back burner, but it, you know, it wasn't in the forefront at all. And and uh, it, it they needed the, that next team. I'm telling you, they helped propel the league forward. And then you know it expanded. Plus geographically now they're expanding. It's 17 teams. 
but then again, you're in competition now with the ABA all this time, you know, and, and that was a, a whole other story. But, but, uh, but no, the NBA, I, I, I did watch it grow. And, and then, of course, uh, the, the visionary aspect of, of, of moving on from J. Walter Kennedy to Larry O'Brien and, and then eventually to David Stern. David Stern but, yep. you know, that, that jumps the story a whole decade, and, you know, that's a whole other matter. Well, let's talk about this. You did three different stints on the Celtics beat, really up until 1988. You also had time there where you were covering the league. Um, so you can't talk about the Celtics without talking about Red Auerbach. No. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, I want to ask you this. What was up with the cigar? What was that all about? He smoked a, a bunch of cigars every day of his adult life. Now, this is before, you know, I didn't cover Red as a coach. Naturally, he, he retired in 66. I got to know Red and his guys as, you know, Mr. Celtic, you know, as the president and general manager. But, uh, uh, and got to know him, you know, pretty well. But uh, uh, it was an arrogant thing. It's no quite, look, when I noticed, see, I grew up rooting, insofar as I was and interested in the NBA, as opposed to college, which was my first love in, in the wintertime, um, uh, I was rooting for Philadelphia. You know, I was rooting against him. And so I was one of the people that was, you know, uh, you know, fuming about red and that arrogance. Yeah, it was the victory cigar. When he thought the game was uh, in hand, uh, he treated himself, lit up a cigar, and it was a. It became a real big symbol. People wanted to, you know, talked about wanting to smash it in his face and tell me. I don't know what other coach and what other sport or or manager of baseball had anything comparable in any act that he did and, and uh, to signify. Yeah, the game's over. We won. Screw you. You know. <laughs> What what was Red like to deal with? What what kind of person was he, and well, what he, made him successful? He was well. He was first of all, he was a very bright man who I think had he applied himself, uh, uh, you know, it could have been a, a military general, it could have been a, a CEO. You know, he was a he was nobody's fool. He was a smart guy. He loved basketball. Period. I mean, not period, but uh, he loved basketball. And and uh, you know, he he was brash. I mean, he was cocky. He was uh, he had a, he, was, he certainly didn't lack for self confidence. You know how he got started in the NBA. He was twenty eight years old. He just came out of the Navy. The NBA, it wasn't the NBA. It was the Basketball Association of America. It was just founded in 1946. One of the franchises is Washington Capitals. And he talks himself into the job by telling owner Mike Uline that uh, I can get players. I got contacts. He had some of them. <laughs> seriously, some of them. He was a guy who would coach prep school in, in, in Washington, D.C. before he went in the Army. But um, he had contacts. And he did. He, had, he, won the, he won the regular season that first year. They got beaten in the playoffs. In the first championship with uh, Philadelphia, but he got beat in the playoffs. But he won the regular season and 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 set a record of, of consecutive games. You know that lasted a long time. You know, uh, so he was he was damn good at what he did. Um, he yeah, one day he says to me, "Who's the greatest six man in history of the NBA?" And I said, "Well, I guess Havlicek." No, I'm thinking, well, okay, he's going to say Sam uh, Frank Ramsey, right? Frank Ramsey, no. Well, wow. the only other six men that I even knew about in those days was Ernie Vandeway, Kiki's father. I said, uh, Ernie, no, he said, Chicky Shapiro. <laughs> Who's Chicky Shapiro? He said, he was the timer in Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Isn't that great? <laughs> All right. You mentioned John Havlicek and John was a yeah. player on the first team that you covered and you covered yes. him throughout the, the rest of his career in the seventies as a child growing up, John Havlicek was one of my all time favorite players. Tell us about Havlicek, the person and Havlicek, the player. Did he, how did he treat you when you were a rookie writer? And then, uh, then how did, how did that relationship evolve over the years? Um, to paraphrase 
uh, what they said about Vince Lombardi. Uh, he treats everybody the same. Like Henry Jordan said, like dogs. John Havlicek was the flip side. He treated everybody with dignity and respect and courtesy. And I mean everybody, uh, a local radio guy, uh, a college kid doing a term paper, uh, uh, the most famous sports writers in America that, that knew him. Uh, he was unfailingly accessible and polite. Uh, and, and, and incisive. Uh, you couldn't have, uh, it, it was a dream for me. The, he was, I won't say the, the only lifeline, but he was the primary one starting that first year. As time went on, you know, I obviously developed deeper, you know, other friendships and other sources, Paul Silas notably, but, right. but, um, and, but Don Nelson and Satch as well, you know, but John was, you know, first of all, John, in 1969, I'm about to say something that a lot of people are going to say, he's just a homer, he's just a Boston guy, he's just being parochial. He was the best player in the league, all right? By 1969, he, uh, Oscar was in the league for 10 years, Jerry was in the league, they, were, they came in the same year, 60, 61. They're in their ninth year, and, and they're, 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 they're peaked. Both of them, they peaked. They're all wonderful players, but they had peaked. John has not peaked. John is about to, to, to shed the six-man label and become the best all-around player in the league. And that's what he was for the next three years, at least. You know, uh, and so I get this inordinate pleasure as a basketball fan of watching him play every night and, and being able to honor of, of reporting on it and then getting to know him and going out, you know, go out with him and have dinner with him and, and, um, and, and just getting to know him and, uh, and, and, and getting his insights. And he taught me, you know, a lot and observations. And, you know, he, he was a source. There's no question. Let's talk Dave Cowens, because that's a player from the 1970s that I have a personal connection with simply because Dave went to my high school, Newport Catholic in Newport, Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. I actually went to high school with his two brothers, his twin brothers. Oh, okay. Uh, 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 yeah, t- their names were Tom and Jerry, like the cartoon <laughs> characters. And they both played on our high school's basketball team. But Cowens, his photo was behind the basket at my high school gym. And, you know, he's a legend in our hometown. Um, but I think he meant a lot to you too, right? The easiest question I ever get at a speaking thing is, who's your favorite player to cover? I say, best player was Bird. And Hamachek's 1A. But my favorite was Dave Cowens. There's no Bird. I've never ever counted anything like him, nor I don't think has anyone else. Because the combination of A, Hall of Fame talent, B, electrifying style, a unique style, and C, uh, for me, an unmatched intellectual curiosity. Not to say he's a raging intellectual, but he's a curious person, and, he, and he's an open-minded person, and, and he's open to, to new adventures and new thoughts, and, and ask, he used to go around and ask me questions, you know, uh, and, and you don't get that too often. And Didn't he once did, drive a cab in Boston when he was playing? Well, that was... Uh, after he, yeah, when he uh, he went on his little sabbatical, uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, that there's, there's nobody has a resume like Dave Cowens. I mean, what happened was he he was he, he left the team in the seventy seven seventy eight season. They had traded Paul Silas that he, he couldn't come to contractual satisfaction in Boston, and and they traded him to Denver, and they and they got Curtis Rowe, and 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 um, and then of course we got Sidney Wicks and the, and the reparations, real long story. Anyway. Um, he missed Silas badly on the court and off the court. And, and he just lost his desire. He just couldn't bring what he wanted to bring. And he, he didn't want to play if he wasn't going to be hundred uh, percent in, into it. And um, so, and he did this month or month and a half sabbatical. And one of the things he did, he didn't do it regularly, but he actually did at least one night or two drive a cab. 
And uh, and that's true. Of course, it's the same guy that spent the night after they won the championship in 1974 and then Sunday afternoon in Milwaukee, we had flown back to Boston after the game and he spent the night going around to different places uh, and wound up, uh, oh, what the hell, here's a park bench in the Boston Common. I'll, I'll spend a couple of hours sleeping it off here. <laughs> so he, he did, in fact, spend time sleeping. In the he park. would have fit in with sports writers. <laughs> <laughs> in 1980, he, you're in Indiana for a, for a preseason game and you're in your hotel with the Celtics, and you get a knock on your door. What happened? It's noontime. Um, I had come back from the shoot-around, the morning shoot-around. They were, they were on an exhibition swing, anchoring in Terre Haute uh, at the Larry Bird Boston Connection Hotel, uh, by the way, and uh, going to play a game that night in Evansville, about an hour and a half, two hours down of US 41. And I played the night before in Indianapolis, and Dave hadn't played very well but he wasn't playing real well in his exhibitions. And I, I was no, I was a little worried about it with some, I, you know, he just didn't look himself. So I, I go to the morning shoot around and I'm back and it's noontime or so. And I'm on the phone talking to Silas who's down in Seattle. And he's telling me about the night before uh, uh, about a game winning basket uh, uh, by Dennis Johnson and, and, um, and how he and DJ and Gus Williams were in, competition <laughs> you know they were trying to one up to each other all the time and he just that that was kind of funny but disturbing as well anyway i'm talking to silas knock 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 i open the door and it was dave cowens is standing there with his practice uniform on number 18 green shirt holding yellow oh holding yellow legal pad papers a sheaf of papers four or five okay i said what's up come on in i said i'm talking to silas you want to say hello so he did so he chats with silas okay what's up dave Read this. Oh my God, I'm reading it. It's a retirement statement. He's retiring right here and there. And I'm reading this whole thing he has written out, explaining why and wherefores and why he's retiring. Well, what do you want from me? Well, I forget the exact phrasing, but it was basically can you go over it and edit it? You know, fix it up if he needs fixing up, edit it. Uh, and I said, and then uh, I said, well, yeah, I can do that. And I said, but you know, I got to have this story for the afternoon paper because, you know, you don't understand that. So that's fine. No problem. You know, I'll get it in the paper. And uh, so um, I said, it'll take me about an hour. And I knew he could write. He had written something for the Globe. He was literate. He could write. He actually, you know, it wasn't going to be a difficult <laughs> editing chore. And on the way out, he turns around and says, oh, do you mind if I call Red first? <laughs> and told our book? No. But the way he put it, I'll never forget it. Do you mind if I call Red first? No, Dave, I don't think I mind that at all. So Yeah, I think you had to tell Red Arbuck. <laughs> conversation. Mary Faherty was Red's secretary. Hi, Mary. It's Dave. Can I talk to Red? Red, it's Dave. Remember what we talked about the other night? Well, I'm doing it. Okay, I'll see you back in Boston. Click. That's not the end of the story. Now it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and the bus is ready to leave for Evansville. Dave comes down like George Washington addressing the troops at Valley Forge. He's, he gets on the bus to tell the players. They didn't know. And he announces that, and he goes up to Parrish, who was playing like horse shit at the time, and gives him a little pep talk. You can do it. You're going to be fine. Don't worry. You know, that kind of thing. And, and um, uh, ML Carr, the forever the team comedian, says, all right, you, you, you threw? He said, yeah. Well, then get the F off our bus then. 
So now the bus pulls away and I'm standing there with him. What's up? Well, I'm going home, going back to Newport. Uh, okay. But being Dave, he didn't have any money or credit cards worth anything on him. How's he going to get there? Well, that's where I come in. I rent the Avis and hand him the keys. I rent the car. You rented a car for Dave Cowens? Yeah. And then handed him the keys. And he says on the way back, he went to a funeral somewhere. Well, he may have. <laughs> he went to a funeral, you know, and then he went home and uh, that's just, as they say, is history. <laughs> that is a great one. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. There was another player, came from the state of Indiana, joined the Celtics, and he was on that team as a rookie, I believe. Yeah, Larry Bird. Yes, another and rather significant figure in my journalistic life. That's the reason why we were in, in, the, in, in Terre Haute to start with. Right. They were going to play because of Larry. They were going to milk the state of Indiana. They were going to play in Indianapolis and at, at ISU and at Evansville, which they did. You know, so we were staying the Larry Bird Boston Connection Hotel, naturally. You know, in uh, in, in Terre Haute. Now you went on to write a book with Larry. My drive, uh, highly recommended. Another great read. Uh, there's so many things we could talk about with Larry. One thing I wanted to ask you quickly was, it's always fascinated me about Bird is when he came into the league. He was very shy, reticent, didn't really speak to the media. By the time he left, he was a great quote. How did he change over the years? Tell me about Larry Bird, the person that you got to know and deal with as a writer. Basketball was very important, although he didn't latch on to basketball uh, 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 until like age 13. I mean, it wasn't like it was, he was, a, he liked baseball first. And, uh, but he, he grew, you know, a little bit and, and discovered and fell in love with seeing that orange that round ball goes to that orange ring. He, he, he kind of liked that, you know, it's a thing you could do by yourself and all that. He was, he's a smart person. He just, I, I used to kid him and say, with Larry Bird, uh, you have successfully evaded the American educational system. <laughs> you know, <laughs> now he graduated from college where, and he did his teaching uh, uh, duties at a uh, uh, student teaching thing at India ISU. But even then he still didn't, you know, associate himself with intellectual pursuit. You know, when he, when he was playing for Indiana state, um, he, he knew he was the center of attention and, and he was conscious of, of being a teammate and he, and he wanted, and then his stated reason for avoiding the media during that whole run in 79 was uh, that he knew that all, they only wanted to talk to him and he wanted to make sure that they talked to other people. So if he didn't talk at all, they'd have to talk to other people. Pretty smart. All right. So I'm going to fast forward to circa 1978. I wrote a magazine story for the Boston Globe Sunday magazine. I pitched him an idea about the blossoming of Larry Bird and how Larry Bird had become Oh, had grown up in public and, and had grown out. He, you know, he, he couldn't, he, he couldn't avoid 
showing off, not showing off, but developing his, his, his personality and his instincts. Uh, and he, 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 he long since gotten over about being wary of the media, embraced the media, knew how to handle the media, and actually liked, you know, liked being that. And I talked about how in those days, there was a, a, a table that sat in the middle of the Celtics locker room. And what would happen was the game would be over and then Larry would come out and sit on, on the edge of the table and you would circle, you would, you know, circle around him. And, and that would be the, uh, and he would do his, and, and he told me for the story when I did the article that uh, I looked up at the clock and said, I knew that they had deadlines and they, they didn't want to be there all night. And um, I knew I could give them like good 10, 12 minutes and, 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 you know, and now that, that, that would do, they would be okay. It's exactly right. And it's exactly right because you know you can't hand out forever. Uh, and but this time, uh, you know, uh, the evening papers were you know distant memory by that time. You know, so uh, everybody had deadline. You know, but he was but he was aware of that. He knew yes. that. He knew what you needed yes. to do to do your and, and job. He was getting more and more. Uh, you know, he 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 had obviously at this point he had opinions about the league. Had opinions about and and he could describe it. He he enjoyed. He he became comfortable with this interview thing. And, and then he, you know, it, it, it was a very interesting, uh, uh, and, and he had the good descriptions. And uh, anyway, he grew up in public and like, they all do, but, uh, you know, some, some of them don't handle it too well and some of them do, but, uh, he always had more to offer the upstairs intellectually, you know, and, and, um, and that, that's, that's what this was all about, but he was very wary in, in the beginning. Yeah. This, this For a guy who didn't talk, he was known as a great trash talker oh, yeah, <laughs> on the floor. That, that he did. And then, you know, and that developed uh, along the way too. He, yeah, he did. He was. Yeah, you know, by the way, we just passed an anniversary uh, as we speak. Uh, uh, on the 11th of February, uh, 1981, was one of my favorite bird games of all time. Uh, we were in Los Angeles having just arrived a uh, night before losing an overtime game in Seattle. And Tiny didn't play for it, wasn't playing for some reason, Tiny Archibald. And uh, we were delayed, you know, it's the old days, no charters or anything. In the West Coast, you get a lot of fog in the winter, you know, and I don't know what happened. We didn't get to LA until three o'clock in the afternoon, and the game was at 7 30 just even arrive at the, at the uh, LAX. So I didn't have a very good feeling about that game. But when we got there, we found out Magic wasn't going to play. And Larry goes up to Magic, who was uh, sitting around, you know, before the game, and said, sit back, Ribbon, and enjoy the show. <laughs> Larry goes for 36 points, 21 rebounds, six assists, five steals, and, and at least three separate times, there was a three-on-one break, and he broke it up. It was one of the – at that point, this is the middle of his second year, it was the best game he had yet played in the NBA. And, and, uh, and, and it, it was just utterly and completely spectacular. And, and they won that game, uh, you know, without tiny, which was a big deal. And, uh, but Irvin sit back and Irvin enjoy the show. <laughs> well, you can't talk about bird without talking about magic, obviously. And you brought Irvin up. You actually saw magic Johnson and Larry bird play. You covered 29 final fours, I believe. Yes. You covered the 1979 Bird Magic, Michigan yes. State defeats Indiana State. That was really the game that I think college basketball just blew up after that game. It's still, I think, the highest rated. It is the highest rated game championship. Of 42 yeah. years later, and of course, it's never going to be surpassed. The game stumped. You know that. It wasn't much of a game. Indiana State, uh, Larry was hurt, and I'm looking at that. And he, was, he shot seven for 21, and he had 13 rebounds. And Magic, the better team won. Okay. Right. Larry increased the legend, the growing legend. He went 16 for 19 in the, in the semifinal game against, against uh, DePaul. And then can't, uh, uh, Michigan State crushed Penn. That's your last Ivy League team to go to the Final Four. And from the time the second game ended, 
I think that was the second game, but I'm not positive. On Saturday night, until they tipped off on Monday night, which now is 9.22 Eastern. I don't know what time we were the night to 79, but uh, maybe a little earlier, maybe not. Todd, that was the longest two days I ever spent in anticipation of an athletic event in my life. And I wasn't alone. There was such anticipation. Turned out the game was anticlimactic. Now, my version, and Larry is so honorable, he'll never admit it. My, you know, you know, he had hurt his hand early in the playoffs uh, in the tournament. I think against, I don't know, they did. He hurt his hand, his thumb. I think early in that game, I remember seeing him catch a pass and wince. And if you watch the tape of that game, of those 13 rebounds, I would say half minimum and maybe nine or 10 were one hand scoops without using that other hand. And he was anything, a fundamentally perfectly sound player who always in any other circumstance that I've ever seen him would use the two hands. There was, there was no showboat nature. There was no need. He couldn't use his left hand. And now no, it wasn't a shooting hand, but he wasn't himself. And that started it a year later. You're in the spectrum courtside, this rookie, Magic Johnson, once again, oh. now he's with the Lakers, and he puts on a performance in game six, filling in for injured Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, playing, he jumps center. He did everything. Tell me what it was like in the spectrum when Magic won that first NBA title. Let's got to back up a bit. Um, that was in game six. And in games one through five, the MVP, unquestionably, was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he hurts himself. He gets hurt in game five. I don't know when he got hurt, but they, they lose game five out there. So we're, we're coming back to, for game six in Philadelphia. And, and he's not playing. He didn't make the trip. And so I can tell you that uh, we in the media, all we were talking about was where we're going to go for dinner when we go back to L.A. for game seven. One seven. <laughs> this is a Friday night game. And we're going to – I'm serious. Where are we going back? Where are we going to go for dinner? Uh, on Saturday, because we're going back for game seven on Sunday. Everybody knows that. They're not beating, they're not beating the Lakers or the Sixers without Matt, Kareem, who had been the best player. I'm sitting behind the basket, first row. And in the first period of that game, Magic Johnson scored five field goals, none of which, as I recall writing, had anything to do with any of the other four. In other words, it was just, you know, it was a it was a virtuoso say a, a hook, a base, a reverse, a post up, a face up, this and that. You know, it was a it was a virtuoso five fascinatingly interesting different shots on route to what it turned out to be forty two points, fifteen rebounds, seven assists. As you know, playing in a sense as much as we can differentiate among positions, which is overrated in basketball anyway. Now forever and more. Um, but off five, you know, did he jump? Yeah, he jumped. Did he, did he guard? He did. He probably did guard somebody. And he, you know, guarded the center, guarded the guard, guarded the forward. It was, he's 20 years old, 2-0, 20 years old. It remains uh, among the handful. It, uh, uh, I don't have to go any farther than that. Five best performances I have ever seen in, 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 in all the years I covered the NBA. And, and it, it was a spectacular, it was 20 years old. So that legend was cemented that night for sure. Then, of course, they give him the MVP, which I, I screamed about because, no, I know that he won that game, but Kareem was the first five games. Was no, there was no argument. 
But anyway, I, I often have problems disputing the MVPs, like in 2010 when they, they no, stole it. Bob, from, you have a problem with things? When they stole it from Pau Gasol and gave it to Kobe, which is uh, no, ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, that's another matter. But that, but that night started it all. It was bird magic from there on. Yeah. And they, they would play 30, 31 times as, as, well, which is great. You know, and I, I was, oh, the only story I ever wrote, story, I wrote a couple of advertising supplements, but I ever wrote for Sports Illustrated. They, they honored me, I mean, tremendously by asking me to write this cover story uh, on Bird Magic Rivalry, you know, after Larry retired. And, and uh, I did. And um, so we researched, you know, they really researched a lot of stuff. I was able to research a lot of stuff. What I'm going to say is that, um, just this digression, it's, it's the greatest individual matchup rivalry of the last 30 years. Um, Michael Thompson referred to them as the salt and pepper of the NBA. Isn't that great? That was great. Um, yeah, it was perfectly, it was too good to be true matchup. And they, they both were each other's biggest fan. And you know, when that, when magic, when, when, um, magic announced, you know, announced to the world that he was HIV positive, uh, he called Larry that day. And when Larry retired, one first, the first person outside of Boston, he called, you know, tell him it was, was magic. And then, you know, it's all for real. It's, it's no, there's no stage phoniness. They're, they, they, they have a bond truly. And then you mentioned him, the jo- Michael Jordan yeah. comes See, they in. They set the table for Michael. Right. Michael and Michael took it over to finish. They got, they went into the end red zone. Okay. Bird and magic took the NBA into the red zone, got it down to maybe the five. Michael took him into the end zone and, and, and where it is today. You know, he said, you can't deny it. And his, and his, and his first big pro moment was dropping 63 in the garden, in the playoffs. The end of his second year, this was the true coming out party. Yeah. You know, Sunday afternoon, national television, the Celtics, the greatest team of all time before the three-point mania took hold, the 85-86 Celtics, and, 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 and he almost beats them. It took Celtic two overtimes, 135-131. He missed the last shot of one of the regulation overtimes, or else, you know, he had a chance. 63, uh, it, it was it – was, what a day that was. Oh, my God. You know, that was – And where we go. That time for us – it was a Sunday afternoon with a one o'clock start, which meant that we could write it. I, we could research the hell out of it. We could write it. And this is a gospel truth. I'm not making this one up. I know nobody believes me. But um, the game started at one. And at approximately 830 Eastern, we being the entire Boston press corps and the Chicago press corps, we all walked out of the garden together and went out to eat together down at the Faneuil Hall in Boston. And, and, and we were there for seven and a half hours. And, you know, and vote every, just emptied it out. Those were the moments, right? When, the, when something spectacular happened and you oh. were able to witness it and chronicle it, and then you could go out with your fellow writers and just relive it and talk about it. Those were the moments of being a writer. Absolutely. One last basketball thing. Um, you know, Ma- Magic and Bird set the table. Jordan comes in, and it just goes crazy from there. The NBA blows up, and then you get to the point where it becomes international. Yeah. And you had the dream team, dream team, the 92 Barcelona Olympics. And you were there every step of the way for the dream team, right? The dream team was the brainchild of Boris Stankovic, the president of FIBA, the international governing basketball body. The, you, the NBA got involved in, in the international basketball. And he wanted to uh, have the American pros involved in, in, in the competitions, namely the world championships and the Olympics, to raise the bar for everybody else to show the world where they need to be, what the, what, what, what the pinnacle of basketball was, where you need to be. 
the dream team had to be like being with the Beatles in 64 when they came to New York. It was, it was, that's right. It was very similar to that. And, uh, you know, they were staying in a four star hotel or five star hotel in Barcelona. They had great security. Uh, they weren't in the Olympic village or, you know, we'd never gone to the Olympic village or, or basketball teams, which, uh, but anyway, um, Oh no, they were everywhere they went. And it was, a, it was a huge, uh, it started of course in Portland, Oregon at the tournament of the Americas. We had to qualify, you know, and that's where the whole things took root. The very first game was against Cuba. And before the game, the Cubans asked to have a team photo taken. You know, they weren't in the illusions about who's going to win the game. They wanted to have a joint photo taken. And that became the ritual. Okay. That became the ritual of uh, the, the theme of the entire uh, postseason of, of the entire tournament in America's uh, and, and, and to the Olympics it was, you know, the ritual, of the other team taking the picture. My favorite moment in, in the tournament of America's were playing Argentina and they had a six, five guard. who was pretty good uh, named Marco Milanesio. And Marco finds himself uh, on a switch with Magic, and and uh, Magic is is now guarding him, uh, you know, on a on a post up uh, on a baseline near their bench. And as he's posting up Magic, he's pointing and waving to the bench, yelling "Photographia, photographia." <laughs> <laughs> it was a fabulous experience. I, I uh, absolutely, and uh, you know, I got to be very friendly with Oscar Schmidt, the great Brazilian. And yeah, he has what fifty thousand career points. I mean, yeah, he's the all-time international scorer. Scored more points than anybody in, in any league, any any world. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he was hey, I, I must, I must, I must point this out though, Bob. You were there every step of the way. La Jolla, California, Monte Carlo, and Barcelona. That's not a bad road trip. Uh, you know, I said that was the greatest boondoggle summer of my life. Well, you know, like we talk so much basketball, and I've kept you kept you quite a while here. But I, I did want to point out, you know, you became a full-time columnist at the Globe in 89. So you covered everything. Uh, 11 Olympics. You know, I think golf was your favorite sport to I love, cover. I, the, I love covering golf. People say, what's your favorite sport to cover? expecting me to say baseball or basketball. And I say, it's golf. And that's logistics. That's, uh, it's the one sport the TV can't, I'll use the F word, TV can't fuck up yeah. and because they have to play it in daylight, which means that you're going to have a, a, a deadlines, uh, pressures off for the, yeah. except on Saturday because you have the early edition on Sunday. And you can be right there. Well, yeah. I was fortunate enough to go to, uh, to St. Andrews when Jack Nick was played his last, oh. uh, last uh, British Open, and I walked all 18 holes with Nicholas and Tom Watson, the yeah. pairing, and I think to myself, I'm standing here walking with Nicholas and Watson? Yeah, no, that's... kidding me? Oh, I, at, the, at the birthplace of golf? I loved getting out there. One of the most five greatest days I ever had covering anything, my favorite memorable days was the, the Sunday afternoon of the Ryder Cup in 1999 when we came from behind and beat, beat the uh, Europeans. And it, there was madness all over the place in, at the country club. You see <laughs> Justin Leonard's putt, like with your own eyes? The famous putt. I have a story. Glad you asked. You have a story? Uh, I, I was trailing. Really, Bob? This, this is the famous Justin Leonard putt in the 17th we're talking about, right? And, in which, and the people come out and they run on the on the green and, and all of Thobble's upset because they're, you know, stomping on his line and the whole thing. Okay. I was covering, I was walking primarily with the group that was behind them. So I'm down the fairway and I see a guy sitting in an NBC golf cart about 100 yards below the green. Oh, hello, Michael. It was Michael Jordan. <laughs> so I watched that. We watched, and he doesn't, I guarantee he doesn't remember, but that's, you know, that we watched that Justin Leonard scenario together from the NBC golf cart. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the memories that, you know, I'm so right. grateful I was able to live this life. I mean, it, 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 that's just the things you 
they're not remotely in your mind when you start. You just want a job. You just want to write. But the byproduct of it is I, I'm so grateful. We really are grateful for your time. And this is what we're trying to capture. You know, we're trying to capture writers and their careers and, and just get these oral histories of these moments and these things that are part of a of a life, you know, and you were help, you were able to bring this to readers and viewers. And we were a conduit to places, to people who couldn't be in the places that we were at. And, and you know, you, you have been at so many great places uh, and have shared such great stories. I always say, and I say this with all sincerity, I am so grateful I did it when I did it because the circumstances were different. And you couldn't, the experiences that we had in our time are, all, many of them are not available. So I'm so grateful, not to mention doing it in Boston for an extremely receptive audience in a town that loves sports. So anyway, thank you for having me. It's been fun to go, you know, do a little reminiscence. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and her audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.